morning and we are back with This Week in Caribbean Art and Culture Season 2 presented by Fam You Mary. I am here with the best co-host ever starting with Maria. Hi everybody. Hi Susie. Hi Melissa. Great to be here. And Susie. Morning everybody. Hi guys. All right so let's go ahead and get started. We have a lot of stories on our plates. Um, this part of this has nothing to do with the Caribbean, but we've started off November with, you know, some high profile um, deaths, both in the United States and in West Africa um, that have been disturbing. I'm not I think people have heard me tell this story. Like I, I am a hip hop fan, but I am a casual hip hop fan and I am a hip hop fan when I need to like get my energy going if I have something that I need to do right. Like if I need to go get them, then, you know, trap music for everybody. But um, I did listen to the group Migos and they did lose one of their members. So um, sad. It so really sad. does. Um, as well, as well as the singer, um, David Owen, I'm hoping I'm saying his name correctly. His son drowned um, at his home and is being investigated now by Nigerian police. So we started that off, but we also started off with the death of a theater icon. And I really would love to talk to, to Susie um, about Leonie Forbes. Um, I saw that last week in a forum that I'm a part of, and I really want to learn more about her, especially because as an American, we used to, here in Miami, we do get a chance to see Jamaican theater, um, especially if you're in the Broward County area. A lot of the tours come through Broward County. It's been a while because of COVID, of course, but I've always wanted to learn more about um, Caribbean theater in particular. So when I saw um, an article mentioning her passing. I wanted to be sure that we did not um, stop without making sure that we talked about her and her life. So Susie, I'm gonna pass this on to you just to kind of educate us about who she is and in her work. Well, Leonie, I mean, a lot of people are very sad at Leonie's passing, you know, Jamaica's a small place and relationship here, especially in the, the you know, particular industries are very, very tight. <laughs> Leonie um, was born in 1937, so she lived to a ripe old age, but she's iconic in several ways. She's an actress, broadcaster, and producer, and she was very active in theatre, but was also on the radio and on television as a broadcaster. I mean, she was born here, but she was, um, at that generation, there was a lot of scholarships abroad, mostly to Britain. <laughs> so she was... Um, she was educated locally, probably till the end of high school. And then she went to UE and up to, um, I believe it was the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art, RADA in the UK. And she spent six years there studying radio, television, stage techniques while working for BBC Caribbean. So she's very, her experience was very kind of global north, pre-colonial, pre-independence, I should say, not pre-colonial, pre-independence. And she returned in 66. So Jamaica had only been independent for four years. So she was really key in developing local programming um, in all these various kind of avenues. Radio in Jamaica is very, very widely um, 
practiced as a, a kind of discourse. There's a lot of talk shows. There's a lot of um, information there, probably more accessible to rural people like with, than television back in those days. <clears throat> and um, she was in a lot, a lot of local plays and international films. And um, she was just a really lovely woman as well, very generous, very much a mentor for younger people. I mean, the loss of her is, is hugely felt locally. Thank you for that. Um, and I noticed that I thought she had a really interesting life um, going to study, but I know that in when you talk about the UK and Europe in general, the way they set up um, their majors is kind of different from the United States. So I thought it was really interesting that that theater and broadcasting went hand in hand. But I know that in the UK, that on um, was BBC Radio, you can find still find lots of radio dramas, at mm -hmm. least good maybe even up into the early 2000s. I'm not sure if they're still popular now. So I thought that was interesting. So thank you for bringing that up. So on to something happy. Um, I wanted to talk about fashion because we brought this up last season. Um, Maximilian Davis joined Ferragamo and um, their spring summer 23 show um, debuted during fashion week and everybody's talking about it. So I want to know if you were able to look at any of the pictures from the collection. And if you're a Ferragamo fan, are you guys Ferragamo fans? They're known for the iconic like flats with a little bow on the top. Sometimes, you know, they're beautiful shoes. Yeah. I really like the um, the new one that they have where they, I think it's Gansini is how you pronounce it, the um, their logo, where they have a, a, a sandal that has a Gansini logo as the actual heel, which I tried to find and I can't actually find it. I don't know if this was just for runway, just for editorial, but I can't find it in any store. When I Googled it, it didn't pop up, but I really, really like the shoes. So the collection I think looks like the way we see a lot of pieces. I know that my daughter is really into men's suiting and oversized men's suiting and pooled pants. Um, and that appears to be the same place that they're going with the oversized draping, this like relaxed look um, seemed to take center stage. I don't know if that fits my body, <laughs> but you know, all the young people that I see who wear those oversized suits seem to, to look good in it. So I'm happy it's for them. It may not be for me at my age or my size. <laughs> <laughs> so, but congratulations to Maximilian. Looking forward to more. All right, ladies, shows. So I got a few messages from you and there was something that I saw that came from Susie. Forecasts form art in the Caribbean diaspora 1990s to today, today at MCA Chicago. Mm -hmm. Susie was good about that. Well, it's a really interesting kind of um, a new way you know, in talking about the Caribbean, often you get, a, a, you know, similar kind of narratives or talking points on how to think about such a com complex region, um, just historically, linguistically, culturally, you know, as a, to really flesh out what we are. Um, it's taking quite an inno innovative curatorial perspective. They're looking at <clears throat> a different time. Um, so it's, from the 90s and it's the making, art making in the Caribbean diaspora. Um, so the artists involved are artists from all over the Caribbean um, diaspora as well as with from within the region. 
And it just, I mean, I'd love to go up for it. <laughs> it's looking at contemporary art in the Caribbean diaspora, um, new modes of thinking about identity and place. It uses the concept of weather and it's constantly changing forms as a metaphor to analyze artistic practices connected to the Caribbean, understanding the region as a bellwether for rapidly shifting times. So it's interesting that they're positioning the Caribbean as a kind of um, signal point of really what's happening in the contemporary world, because in so many ways, there's so much to teach and learn from the region and, and the experiences of the region. So um, in a nutshell, that's what it is. And I would say anyone <laughs> who can get to MCA Chicago should see the exhibition. I hear it has a really beautiful catalog um, and a lot of really interesting scholarship as well. And you can purchase the, the catalog from mcachicago.org. So um, I also wanted to add something here because I think that this show also, like for people that are trying to get into Caribbean art and they may not know a lot about it, this really has like all the heavy hitters, you know? So, so it kind of, it will bring you up to date, you know? Um, uh, so, so that's also, um, um, yeah, like a, a good source of knowledge. So like kind of as an aside, one of, I know whenever I have conversations about Black art um, with anyone, it appears that I split Caribbean, not that I split Caribbean off, but I'll say Black art and then maybe I'll mention Caribbean art as well. I know people don't ever want to say it, but the look in their eyes always say that they're confused because mm. I think in their head, you know, is this not the same thing? Um, and no, it's not because the Caribbean is such a, a diverse region um, and there are people from all over um, who are part of that. So you're when you're looking at Caribbean art, you're not just getting black artists. That's just not possible. It, it, it can't possibly happen. And if you look at this show, there's everybody that, you know, everybody that you love, even if you are a casual art lover who just kind of, um, who just kind of, you know, scrolls through Instagram, a lot yes. of the artists that you see or who are reposted are a part of that show. And mm -hmm. with that being said, ladies, whose work are you interested in seeing in this show? I mean, I know all these artists, so I think that all of them are fantastic, <laughs> like all of them, you know, so it's really like that. I feel like, um, like you'll be pleased. So I wouldn't, um, it's hard to choose one. I mean, if I were to choose one, I'd probably choose um, uh, Frank Bolin mainly because I don't feel like he's exhibited a lot in the US. I feel like a lot of these other artists, you know, like do circuit a lot between New York, Miami, and um, yeah, between New York, Miami, a lot of these artists do circuit a lot. Um, so, so, but I, so I think they're all great. They're all fantastic. Um, uh, I'm glad also that you know a museum in Chicago is doing this in the sense of like giving them like the big space because I think that sometimes and right now there's a lot of shows about Caribbean art all over the country, which is fantastic but they don't always get the big space, the real estate, you know, in a publication. So I also think that is very meaningful that a city like Chicago that is super diverse, um, um, one of the biggest in the country is trying to, you know, catch up and, and do it in a way that's respectful, in a way that is the way you should do it. Let's do the big show, let's do a book, mm -hmm. 
let's put you know the money where our our our, our you know what let's create impact because I feel like a lot of these shows have good intentions, but it's really more about the impact that we can create in our creative community. And also, if you are going to be in Miami in December, end of November, Didier Williams, who is also a part of the MCA Chicago show, will also have a solo show at Mocha North Miami. I'm really excited to be a part of that. Side note, Sugarcane will be doing um, a fantastic event with Yale and Mocha and Didier um, December 2nd at 2 p.m. So we will give you more deal details about that at a later time. Hey, it's your truly DJ Bulletproof of iHeartRadio, and I'm sitting down with Virginia King, Program Administrator for Florida A&M University's Medical Marijuana Education and Research Initiative, a.k.a. Marion. This is a Mary's moment. Can you grow your own marijuana in Florida if you have a medical marijuana card? The answer actually is no, you can't. Florida law only allows licensed medical marijuana treatment centers to grow, process, and dispense marijuana. The department will refer any business or person suspected of violating state law to local law enforcement for investigation. It is important to remember that marijuana is still illegal under federal law. Once again, is yours truly DJ Bulletproof of iHeartRadio sitting down with Virginia King of Florida A&M University's Medical Marijuana Education and Research Initiative, a.k.a. Mary. Educate, learn, talk with Mary at mmeri.famu.edu. So, yeah, I have to agree with you that there are a lot of artists in the show that I that I like, um, and I'm just excited to see it. I went up to Chicago a few weeks ago, and I'm, I have to be sure when this closes. This is it closes. I think oh, it's so gonna long. be up. I think it's gonna be up for a long time, and yes, I think it. that um, it's gonna be up also for the fair. It's gonna so. be up till April. April 23rd. Yeah. So I have plenty of time to go see this. Yeah. Um, this is going to be like a first stop when I get into the city for sure. But, you know, there's like, and, and we talked about this offline, but there's like a lot of Caribbean shows right now up uh, in the East Coast, which I think is interesting also how they're all kind of speaking to each other. And, we're, and they're all kind of taking the environment as a motif. Um, you know, the one in America Society. Uh, deals with kind of tourism and the consumption of the space. The one up and later up in the Whitney is most specifically centered on hurricanes. So um, um, no, it's it's all very cool and neat. So I would love to get your opinion about: Is this a renewed interest in the region? Is this a new interest in the region, or? Are these museums just focused on really great artists? I mean, for me, I think it's it's relatively new. I think it's a particular exciting moment for the Caribbean. Um, I think museums post Black Lives Matter know they have to um, be inclusive, respectful, have some integrity to the shows that they're doing. And we have such a large migratory presence in the world. Um, that wherever you go, you're going to find Caribbean community, you know, even though it might not be directed at them, it helps it helps others kind of think about the Caribbean in different ways, because we're so commercially driven um, as in terms of the construct around how we're seen and understood, you know, it's mostly tourism based. <clears throat> so, I mean, I think it's I think it's new and exciting. I know there have been efforts in the past. 
Um, I, I wouldn't say they've always been successful. Um, but certainly now the curatorial kind of thinking around the Caribbean is very different and very refreshing, certainly for some, from, for someone from within the region. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that like, um, you know, there has been shows about the Caribbean in, um, in the US and in Europe, specifically like, you know, the UK and um, uh, Paris, right? Um, throughout the 1940s, I guess, till today with different approaches. Um, and the conversation has shifted, right? There was a moment in which there was, you know, this attraction towards uh, notions of the fantastic. There was another moment when they shifted away from the fantastic to more conceptual work. Um, and so I think there's been a conversation that's been happening. I do think that now there's more of a concerted effort and part of that, you know, I think that it has to do a lot with when museums here started to take it more as a commitment to the region, which I think Miami probably has the lead on that, undoubtedly. Um, you know, I think that from 2013, there was like a true, you know, if you go to Miami right now, you're always going to see a Caribbean show. And I think that's pushing other museums into play. So, um yeah, I think so. And I also think that there's also, you know, in the last 10 years, there's been more curators of Caribbean descent in important roles in museums. So I think that's also driving this conversation because I we, we talk about these shows, but all these shows have, you know, curators of, of Caribbean curators um, in those roles inside the institution. And there's even more, you know, in other parts of the US and Canada as well. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's also significant and, you know, and like with this show in particular, you do see that Caribbean artists are important place in the art market because all these artists have galleries, you know, and you, and you often, when I was kind of coming of age um, in the curatorial field, there were artists that, you know, or the majority of them have gallery representation, but they were artists who, you know, the Caribbean artists were perhaps seen as kind of always struggling or like this and that. And I think that um, the, the, it has shifted, the market has shifted um, in their favor. So I think that's also another thing that's driving this, um, uh, this interest. It's interesting that you mentioned Miami as the lead on the Caribbean, because there's this show that <clears throat> I didn't send. I don't know why I just forgot. Um, but Danny Baez has curated um, yes. New Light Arts. Yeah. yeah. Miami is not the Caribbean, yet it feels like it is the title, which kind of plays exactly into what you're saying. Yeah. Um, because of the, the kind of population makeup and how the Caribbean is pre so present in Miami generationally yeah. as well. So, and that's an interesting kind of um, artist selection as well. So I'd, I'm looking forward to seeing that. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's a, it's a good, I think, um, I like that you bring that up because I think that um, it's a good contrast. I also, because I feel like in Danny's show, there's a lot of newer emerging artists, right? So if you want to yeah. see something new, if you want to go see that show and you're going to be surprised. Um, so there's some, always something for um, uh, every, every, every art lover, right? Um, but I do think, you know, I do think that Miami um, deserves some respect 
or some, mm-hmm. you know, about that. Cause I do think that it's quite astonishing that, I mean, I mean, I, I think that if you go to Miami at a given time, you're always going to say a Korean show and from different people and like, and the collections in Miami should like have artists, you know, that could do any show that, you know, we could see um, uh, right now. So so, but I also think, you know, that that the beauty about these conversations, which I think is also what's important about the moment right now, is that these conversations are happening in other places around the U.S. Because I think that's important because Caribbean people are not just in New York or Miami. They're everywhere in right. in, in the country. And uh, I mean, people, as some of you know, I just moved to Texas and people ask me, oh my God, like, what did you do there? When you got, well, the first thing I did, I went to Daddy Yankee concert that was full. And, you know, I danced reggaeton till, you know, till we have, till they kick us out of there. So like, <laughs> and I already got my pan sobao. I know where I get it. I know what I get all my ingredients for this <laughs> and that, you know what I mean? Like we're truly, we're truly everywhere. So, um, and I think that now, and I know that we started the conversation with this kind of sad about the killings and all this stuff, but I think that's what we need right now in the, you know, from this from a US perspective, we need for the conversation from the coast to move into other parts of the country. Cause that's really when we're gonna see more change because these look like New York and look like Miami. That's what I found out moving to Texas that everybody, oh, wait a minute. That's the, that's the problem that we all look, that all cities look like this, you know? And they don't know how to do with that. But anyway. A, a really good friend of mine who passed away and he was a playwright. And he told me about his time living in Houston. Um, he was Puerto Rican, um, born in Puerto Rico. I think Ponce is where he's from, his family is from. Um, he presents white, but he grew up in New York, you know, very Puerto Rican man. And one of the things that he would get in trouble about at his job is when he was a bus driver because he went to college in Texas and he was a bus driver. So what he would do is when he would pick people up, he wouldn't make black passengers sit in the back of the bus. He would let them sit where they wanted. And he would always get in trouble by his supervisor and because they didn't realize that he was Puerto Rican, they just saw a white man, a white boy. So they would always get mad at him like, you know, you New Yorkers, you're not from here. You got to make them sit in the back of the bus. And he was like, yeah, okay, I'll make them sit in the back of the bus. Later. And then he would just continuously let people sit where they wanted to. And they would always complain. He never lost his job. He was able to quit when he was tired of it. But he was able to do that. And he lived in Texas. And this was like in the 50s, I guess. So that's there's a nice been, uh, that's a there's there's been a presence um probably more so than we realized and i want to also add here which i forgot to mention that like we're also in a moment where you know simone lee who's a jamaican descent sonia boys like both of these women like you know there's a lot of like at least like heavy heaters are representing different important countries or, or countries that we're talking about so i think that that also speaks to where we're the moment that we're at right now with um korean art conversations and speaking of, I didn't read the story, but it came across my phone, like a little pop-up. So Sonia Boyce has new representation. Okay. From a major, from a major gallery. So apparently, well, uh, you know, I think long story short is that Venice was great and she has walked out of there with major representation. I just, I saw the pop-up and if they mention the name of the gallery, I missed it, but I did see that, you know, that she has 
this ends with her getting major representation from a major gallery. So I don't know if it's a house in Worth, but you know, basically she's doing well. And I've been noticing other um, artists um, who have done their shift from maybe mid-tier galleries up to majors. Um, so this has been, this year ended really well for everyone. I'm curious to see how this art market will do um, with this recession that we're in. I'm curious to see how things turn out and to see where things go. Um, and not just, you know, with major collectors and major buyers, but I also wanted to really take a, a good look at how the nonprofit art world fares this which we typically don't do well. But I'm wondering if, you know, we learned from 2008 and if there are things in place to help us weather this particular recession so that we're not in as bad a shape as we were in the past. Susie, you want to add something? It looked like you were gonna say I, something. I wanted to go back to this, you know, this particular moment for Caribbean art in the world. And just make an observation that I think an interesting um, kind of repercussion um, or, development within that is a growing interest in funding things happening in the Caribbean and uh, creating internally more relationship. Um, so there's a the Rubis uh, fund a youth art project here in Kingston called Impulse. It's run by Camille Cheddar. Um, they've been working for maybe four or five years, really, you know, really great work. When she went to Documenta, she took a couple of them with her and they, you know, they were, um, so that experience for them is really, really quite something. And we have two Dominican artists, an artist and a curator here now for part of their program. And they're working with the Edmani School. I mean, NLS bring in like Simone Lee and Nari Ward when they, when they come here and when they're visiting <clears throat> for students to be able to engage and listen to artists of that kind of stature about their experience and their practice. Um, but I think that to me is what's kind of an interesting thing as well in this in this interest in the Caribbean is that we are able to have more engagement with each other. And that comes down to funding opportunities and the kind of workshops and panels and discussions. And, you know, when an artist or a curator comes to a place, that's what you're doing. But of course, you meet everyone within the ecosystem and, and you know, and and it kind of. It, it's only going to give rise to more more um, interesting writing, you know, outside perspectives, but from within the region. You know what I mean? So it, to me, that's an exciting level as well as a moment. There's a, there's more engagement now than there ever has been before. I agree. I agree with that. Like, because I think that, um, yeah, I agree with that 100 percent. Because mm -hmm. they were, um, you know, they were the Havana Biennial or Cari Festa, which were moments of like kind of trans regional engagement. But now it's happening, not just that one big fest, art festival or art exhibition. Um, it's happening at different types of, of moments, which I think is, which I think it's, yeah. I think that's that's the legacy, right? That we're really um, creating right now. So you, you mentioned something about Miami. Um, so right before we close out, just wanna ask this question. Is, is the region, happy with and okay with it appearing that Miami is kind of the nucleus of the Caribbean art world? Um, you know, I, I mean, I, I have thoughts on this and it's it's talked about quite a lot. I mean, you know, in context of something like the Atlantic World Art Fair, 
when you think about it having a physical manifestation somewhere um within the caribbean it's just so problematic you know how are people going to fly we always have to go through miami to get to trinidad or to get to antigua or to get to cuba or haiti um and it's almost like this sense of caribbean-ness can be had from the outside only in terms of where we can all gather and that's really down to systemic issues around customs cost, travel, et cetera. So no, I mean, I think everyone's very glad. Certainly people I know are very happy that they're somewhere close by because Miami is considered the back, the backyard of the Caribbean, you know? Um, so no, I mean, I don't think there's any negative feeling towards Miami. It's, it's kind of like the gratitude that the visibility that they offer and it's authentic. You know, these come, there's a large Caribbean community as you know, and lots of people from that, our heritage, working in these fields I do I mean I do want to clarify like I don't think Miami is the center of the Korean art world I think there's many centers like yeah. I think there's conversations that happen in Paris that I don't that we don't have total access to same in London um, and same in other parts of of the U.S. Canada Toronto you know I think that there's there's many uh hops there's many networks Mm-hmm. Um, that I think is important to to, to acknowledge. <clears throat> I, think, yeah, I just think that in the past five, nine, in the last, since 2013 on, maybe to 2013 to 2019 or so, Miami was very intentionally doing a lot of Caribbean initiatives. Like that's really what, what and that has an impact. Um, yeah, so that's just wanted to clarify. Yes, I agree. And, you know, I've always been interested in, you know, there have been attempts to have conversations around the Caribbean. And I know, I think we mentioned this last in the last season um, when 154 were doing their, all their programming in their forum program was around the Caribbean. And yet there was one person from Martinique, everyone was Central American outside of that. And so, yeah, obviously there are issues around that that are problematic, but I've always been quite intrigued what the conversations are in Paris. So normally you can get online access to this, this kind of programming, but the linguistic barrier, you know, I can't really, I can speak some French, but I can't sit there and like follow a conversation fluently. And um, the interesting part of that for me is that the French islands in the Caribbean are still colonized. You know, they're still, they're considered France. So um, I, I, I'm fascinated what those conversations must be like. Um, and I have yet to really discover. But yes, I agree with you. Different points, different hubs. But I think Miami has been the most vocal, perhaps the most intentional. Um, and that's the, the work you were leading on at the Perez, Maria. Um, the, you know, the research institute, you know, being able to, really um, enable a lot more work through that kind of channel. And that's how it's seen generally, certainly from here. Well, that, that's still happening and that show continues to happen. And um, I don't know, it's just, it's just, I think we're very lucky, right? To, to live in the moment that we're living and to all of us contribute to create this from our points of view. Um, and I'm just just happy about that. I remember, you know, 10 years ago that I just thought, oh, I could only work in this place and this other place. I, you know, the only two places could potentially do the exhibitions that I would like to do. And now I feel like they are possible in a lot of more places. 
Um, so that's really, and more people are seeing them and more people are connecting to them mm -hmm. and more people are then including their stories into, and their perspective. And it just creates more richness for our, for our region and, and for our own cultures. We just learn more about ourselves and about who we are. Um, and it's, you know, it's interesting what you say about this feeling of Caribbean-ness that, hap that only, ha only happens once you're like in the diaspora, right? Once you migrate. Because I don't know, I, I, I think that's true. Like I agree, but at the same time, maybe because I'm like a black woman, when I was living in Puerto Rico, I already felt different. So like, like, like I always knew that, um, uh, yeah, I had that sense of difference that I feel like kind of tries to really easy into the Caribbean identity. Although also coming from a place that's also still a colony, Puerto Rico, there there's like a national rhetoric that always connects you to the Caribbean. So, um, and to its politics. So I just wanted to- Yeah, yeah, yeah. in the UK, I mean, I, I think it's quite subjective because there's such a, you know, such a diverse um, kind of way to experience that, you know? Um, as individuals and as community but I know in the UK when I was there like I had never I was a very you know quite young um, in my teens and this sense of West Indian as they call it there and that remains you know they're kind of like in this windrush West Indian which is quite colonial language you know um, but the Caribbean is not a word that's used a lot in terms of identity it's West Indian you know but that's and a lot of the academics <clears throat> the likes of Stuart Hall and Paul Gilroy speak about this notion of identity as island people together in a different space. Um, so, yeah, that's what yeah. I mean. just different from the States. Yeah, no, totally. That's so, and I, yeah, no, I, I love that because it reminded me of the show that Andil Gosin did at the Ford Foundation and how he's particularly oh. was interested in like, you know, the, the Indian heritage and That's in my Chinese. in the Chinese yes and in my you know yeah. I just said a couple of minutes ago or a couple of seconds ago that you know I grew up thinking that I was coming because I was different but it was definitely not attached to Chinese or Indian heritage you know it was attached to a very specific definition like black Latin you know uh Caribbean type of identity right I love it Ladies, we are going to wrap this up. Um, this was a great conversation and I'm looking forward to it. As I mentioned before, we have some great events coming up. Um, stay tuned and visit our Instagram page, which is instagram.com forward slash sugarcane magazine. Hopefully Instagram is working because it was down for a few days. Um, but if it's not, you can also visit sugarcanemag.com. But before we go, Susie, where can we find you online? Um, you can find me on IG, Susie Wong Presents. And Maria. You're on mute. <laughs> you can find me on IG as well at Contemporary Chica. And you can find me at Melissa Hunter Davis on Instagram, but more importantly, go visit us over at sugarcanemag.com. Um, thank you so much for joining us. This is This Week in Caribbean Art, sponsored by Fam You Mary. We will talk to you next week, guys. Bye. Bye, Bye everybody.